This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Finding common ground today ain't easy. Uh, Finding reasons for optimism ain't easy either. Uh, So when I picked up Union uh, by Jordan and Chris Ha earlier this year, I was hooked uh, by the subtitle, which is Democrat or Republican and the search for common ground. And then I was rewarded uh, by the reading of the book. And Jordan and Chris met at Yale Law School and seemingly that's about all they had in common. Jordan's a military veteran. Um, He's an attorney in California. He spent five years in the US Marines, uh, two combat uh, tours overseas, went to Stanford grad school. Chris is a writer also from California. That'll become pertinent. Uh, Started as a speech writer in the Obama House, uh, White House, and then went to the U.S. Department uh, of State's policy planning and was speechwriter for the secretary then. Chris was uh, raised by liberal activist family. Uh, Jordan's family uh, was Republican, and he was uh, enthusiastically defended in Jordan's high school by his sister uh, for being a Republican. But Here these guys are seemingly uh, disconnected, but a serendipitous series of road trips found more alike about them than differences and forged a friendship that informs us all. So welcome, Chris and Jordan. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, So you were both introduced at law school, and you had some engaged debates. I think uh, I had mentioned that I'm from New Haven. So your engaged debates were at the Owl Shop. I know exactly where that is. And they probably have more tables set outside now than they did uh, when you were in law school. So I get how you got friendly and you decided on this first trip. Jordan, you were getting to your sister's wedding. Chris was going. But what happened on this, like, we're just getting across the country over eight days that turned it into 44 states and 20,000 miles? Yeah, so there, there were two things that happened to us that I think were, were really important. Uh, the first was on the road, you have time and space to have much deeper, longer conversations. And at the time, it was... It was May 2016. The country seemed to be at each other's throats. And Chris and I, in all our conversations at the Owl Shop, found that we were always fighting. And they turned into these tit-for-tat, all-out political battles. But on the road, we could have much deeper, longer conversations. And we found them really enriching. And we certainly fought on the road, too. But because we were in a car, we we were always able to come back to what were the values we shared. And that that was uh, this initial moment of of realization that there was something important to being on the road. And then the second thing that happened was we had an encounter with an Idaho state trooper. And I'll, I'll let Chris tell this story, but this, this story also kind of kicked off this question in our minds about what was happening across the country. Yeah, absolutely. On that, on that first trip, uh, it, you know, there was no book intention here. There was just getting somewhere. 
uh, and there was the intention of seeing the country as much as we possibly could. Uh, but while we were driving through Idaho, in fact, while I was driving through Idaho, I may have been going a little bit too fast uh, down a uh, straightaway. Um, anyone who's driven through Idaho knows that these roads are very flat, very long, no turns, it's easy to lose track. Uh, and I got pulled over. And I was terrified, I will admit. Uh, I was wearing my Berkeley Political Review shirt. I had my earrings in. My hair was uh, a little bit shorter, but, but very similar in length. Um, and I had had some very bad experiences with police officers in the past. So this was worst case scenario for me. Um, but this police officer came up to the window, uh, asked for my ID, asked for Jordan's ID, asked for the registration. And we started telling him, well, my IDs, you know, Chris, my IDs from uh, DC. Jordan said, well, mine's from California and the car is registered in New York to his grandfather and we're in school in Connecticut. And um, everything about what we were telling him seemed to puzzle him. And he said, Chris, can you please get out of the car? I said, yes, although I'm starting to panic even further while Jordan is very cool being the Marine he is uh, next to me. And he brings me into his own car and he says, look, none of this makes any sense. And there's something about our entire lives to this, to this police officer that just to him spoke of something very strange, very un, unexpected. Uh, and he asked me the same questions. I gave him the same answers. He eventually walked over to Jordan and asked him the same questions, got the same answers. And eventually Jordan said, you know, I'm a Marine. I wouldn't let anything untoward happen in this car. And at that point, the police officer said, okay, you know, in that case, I'm going to let you guys go. But the experience of spending that time with that police officer, um, have our lives make almost no sense to him for right off the bat. And then in turn, have his confusion make almost no sense to me and Jordan um, was really sort of powerful for us. It, we sort of learned that there was this division between, you know, where we're from and, and other parts of the country and that we needed to, we wanted to sort of plunge into the middle of that. Um, it also kicked off uh, a few fights about um, uh, police community relations between Jordan and I, uh, which was also part of the sort of central piece of this book, which is our own conversations and our own ability to become friends and, and overcome those differences. So Chris, I was struck, um, I, I found that story in Idaho with the policeman to be riveted, but the, it seemed to me like that encounter was ripe, as you say, Chris, for the beginning of you and Jordan having a conversation because there you are, two white men, um, and uh, plus Jordan's a Marine, which, which seemed to me was pivotal in, in the outcome. So did you immediately have a conversation of how it might have been different if one of you were Black? And did you agree on whether it would be the same or different? Almost immediately, we had that conversation. Um, I, if I recall correctly, my initial reaction when we got back in the car was, at first, I'm not driving anymore, and we switched seats. And then my second reaction was, my God, he was, he was so reasonable, um, which to me in 2016 was something of a surprise. And to Jordan, it was not. He said, of course he was. You know, if, you're, if you are measured, if you... Um, if you're polite, if you, if you, if you respect uh, the authority of the police officer, you'll be fine. And that kicked off this longer conversation about, you know, what would have been different if we would maybe look different, um, if we were African-American or, or minority or, or any sort of different um, label. Um, and I, I think we disagreed at first um, and we came around um, to understanding one another um, quite well later on. But early on, we had these fights where we sort of staked out ground um, we thought we, we, we felt very, very differently, and we fought like cats and dogs about it. 
um, because those early conversations weren't necessarily about understanding. They were often about scoring points or being right. And therefore we sort of, we sort of took our positions and we wouldn't budge and, and we often wouldn't listen. And so that led to these big fights. Um, and so while we were seeing many of the same things on the road, uh, these interactions, like for example, the one with the police officer, um, showed us that we had work to do as a friend, as a friend, uh, as a friendship, excuse me. You know, one of the, one of the most wonderful takeaways that I had, uh, from the book is one of you, I forget which one of you made the statement. Um, and it was, don't have a political conversation if your intention isn't to learn. So how possible is it, do you think, in the real world for people to be guided by that objective? Well, I, I, think, I think it's very possible. I, I, I'm, I'm always sort of, sort of surprised by how often people engage on things like social media or with random people they've never met in these shouting matches where they're both yelling about facts yeah. and data that support their side. And, and every time I see it, I, my, my first thought is like, do you really think you're convincing that other person uh, through these like shouting matches? Um, and so it, I, I think it's, it's actually very reasonable, but it, it's, it's hard because especially with, with people who you're actually close with in your life, um, we feel very passionately about the things we believe. We feel passionately about um, the values we hold. And often those passions get the best of us. It's very hard to sit back and say, you know, as different emotions come up for you, that you are just going, you're going to listen and let the other person speak. Um, our natural reaction, I think, is to, to weigh back in with the point that we think is right or to try to show where they're wrong. And so it, it is hard to overcome that, that tendency. And the truth is it took Chris and I uh, three years on the road to get to the point where we could sit back and we could listen to each other. And honestly, we still fight. We still get into arguments and we have to remind ourselves. Um, uh, I think we, we write in the book at one point that you know, often we would get angry, but then when we calm down and let our, our better angels kind of take hold, then we could have humility and grace for the other side. And so we're not saying that it, it's going to be easy, but it's, it's something to cultivate because it's so important to, to get to better answers, to get to better decisions, to find areas where we could actually work together that we're able to listen to the other side. And what Chris and I found was that ultimately made us better. Uh, my views became stronger, more informed as a Republican. I think the same was true for Chris um, by being able to have better conversations through listening rather than trying to score points. Yeah, and, and what I'm going to, uh, you know, want to get more into is what role the media has in um, sort of creating flames that necessarily don't need to exist. Because the other, you know, the other part of the book is the people you met and what you witnessed. So, uh, Chris, I'm going to have you talk about early in the book, in the, on the first trip, um, you stop at a Phoenix Trump rally mm -hmm. and there's language in there that um, really took me aback. Describe how, how you describe in the book your reaction to Trump's speech. Absolutely. Uh, I was surprised. Uh, we, we ended up going to this rally sort of on a whim. We ended up in the area. I saw it on Twitter. I said, Jordan, maybe we should take a look at this, really not thinking. Of course, Jordan said, that's a great idea. And I immediately started to regret it. 
Um, but when we actually got there and managed to get into the rally, um, I was I was blown away uh, as a recovering speechwriter myself, um, listening to these scripted languages that sounded a lot like what I might have scripted into a democratic speech, um, you know, just four years, eight years earlier. Uh, you know, it was a scripted language of love, unity, overcoming division. Um, and I said as much to Jordan. Uh, you know, at the same time, while we were in that rally, Jordan and I took a look around and felt like we were being watched. And there was elements of that crowd that were quite scary to both me and Jordan. And what we were sort of starting to realize in that moment in that rally is that uh, we were seeing things through the same pair of eyes almost, that we could agree on facts. Um, and that was on our second road trip. So this was quite early on in, our, in, this, in this journey of ours. And that was when we really started to say, hey, maybe there's, maybe there's a voice here. Maybe there's something we can say. Maybe the fact that if Jordan and I can go to a Trump rally and see things the same way and interpret them in similar fashions, um, then there's a larger point here about how we actually can communicate. Uh, because often, if you were to, say, watch the coverage of that very rally um, later that night, you would not have seen the same things we did. Uh, for instance, after the rally, we were out and about um, sort of in the area I call the, we called the brackish area, which is where all the rally goers um, sort of who were streaming out of the convention center met up with um, the protesters who were there in, in great numbers. Um, and while we were walking around this area, sort of trying to get understand how people were reacting to the evening, we both saw groups yelling, mainly for the cameras, uh, but we also saw groups of people talking and having civil dialogue. And uh, there was one group in particular, two BLM supporters talking to two rally goers uh, about Black Lives Matter um, and what it means to both of their sides and saying, explaining, you know, how they came to feel the way they did. And that conversation ended in handshakes and a lot of nodding and walking away. And if you had watched the news that night, you would have only seen the tear gas canisters flying. You would have only seen, heard uh, when Trump went off message and, and pointed to the media and then this, this massive booing ensued. Uh, you wouldn't have seen these 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 sort of glimmers of hope, these glimmers of communication and common ground um, that that we did. So, so I mean, that was the twofer of that night. It was the fact that we saw things the same way, but also that we saw this glimmer of of understanding, and that's what we went out on the road to try to find from from that point on. And tell us, Jordan, about what was your observations about the audience at the rally? Yeah. So. Uh... You know, I had actually never been to a political rally before. Uh, they're, they're, it's just not my, uh, it's not my kind of thing. Um, so we, we got inside. I, I would say the vast majority of the crowd was um, kind of blue collar, lots of tattoos, biker jackets. Um, they were they're mostly middle-aged. They skewed white, um, mostly white. And uh, there were a few younger couples in, in the crowd. And for the most part, it was just a normal crowd and they all, uh, kind of in, in typical political fashion are, are cheering for the president, they're cheering for the speakers, and um, there was a general uh, aura of, of, uh, of sort of joy and, and celebratoriness. But what we did see was there were a few characters that we felt were kind of prowling around the scenes that, that just seemed a little bit off. And there was one in particular who stood near us who just kept glancing over and looking at us uh, with this kind of menacing glare. And so you know, that, that was sort of the first feeling that there's, there's, a, darker, there's a darker element here. And it, it didn't necessarily mean that the, the, the Trump crowd itself was dark. It was just there were a few characters prowling the scenes that, that I felt off put by. Um, and my military training trains me to, to be aware of those kind of things and to look for biometric signs that indicate a threat. And so I, I felt a little uncomfortable uh, with those people around. 
And the same was true outside. So we, we get outside with the protesters uh, and the Trump supporters. And for the most part, it's just normal people there to express their approval or disapproval of the president, to advocate for their sides. But then we saw some very dark characters. Uh, there were um, a bunch of people kitted up with full combat gear and, and assault rifles who turned out to be a um, anti-white supremacist militia that I was frankly a little disturbed that they had loaded weapons around so many people. And um, masks, right? And, and then there were uh, elements of um, whether they were Antifa or other groups who uh, they're in mass and they're, they're ready to, to cause trouble. And at some point, somebody threw something at one of the riot uh, police officers and it breaks out into chaos. And uh, those people were there looking for a fight. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we saw that 90% uh, or 95% of the people that night in the rally and outside were, were just normal people. And then there were 5% looking for trouble. And uh, it was, again, something that Chris and I saw the same way. And we were able to talk about afterwards um, with that shared set of facts. So Chris, you mentioned um, uh, in, in your comments a minute ago about uh, the cable stations or the news media were going to report on the violence or maybe the masked guys that Jordan was just uh, referring to. Do you feel or do you feel that uh, journalism is not doing its job properly, that it is in fact adding to the divisiveness? Is it under, you know, the bad news sells, good news doesn't? Right, the, the if it bleeds, it leads mentality. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think my, the short answer is yes, but I, I have a lot of love for the journalism community. I consider I myself a journalist. Yeah, I, I trained in it. Um, I, you know, my, my back, the background on my phone for years was Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein going over a draft uh, uh, during their Watergate reporting. Um, what I'll say is that we have a very diverse uh, press, almost by design. And there are amazing people in the press currently doing great work um, who, are, who are digging deep, who are finding amazing stories. Um, and I would encourage us all to try to listen to them more than anyone else. Um, but what I think is happening is that uh, our, our, the, the majority of our media diets are being um, consumed by um, a different kind of journalism, a, little, a more aggressive, uh, less thoughtful form. Um, as a result, uh, it's creating this crisis in, in our media diets. Um, I think that the, the Trump rally was a perfect example. Um, you know, the, the headlines uh, are important. You know, you need to know that violence broke out. You need to know that Trump went off script um, partway through that rally and started talking about something other than that message of unity. But it's also very important that we bring back stories that aren't just that, if, if there are other stories going on. And I worry that that depth of reporting, that sort of second level, third level reporting is just not happening. Um, we spoke to someone recently who worked inside a newspaper for decades, ran a newspaper, a, a large one, who said uh, uh, negative stories outperform good stories uh, eight to one or, or right around there. And so there's these negative incentives in our media that lead to those headlines, that lead to that kind of reporting and that sort of lead away from the longer material, the material that speaks to a more complex picture than, say, one side, another side clash. And I think that's where that's where we're sort of losing our way. And, you know, I, I have to start start a clock on myself every time I talk about journalism because I could talk about it for days. But what I would say is that we need to double down on the on, on the sort of. Um, ethics and and uh, professional techniques of the profession that made it great, 
Um, but we also need to adapt to this new era because I think between, between technology, between our political language, between um, the way this country is changing, we just haven't been able to adapt so far and that needs to change. Yeah, and Jordan and Chris, to me, this role of journalism, I'm not, you know, I was an accounting major and a finance major, so <laughs> I, I don't come from that, but I have begun to feel uh, that journalism and is the key to our moving into a place of more unity and optimism. But what do you think are the key things that any of us can do as like normal, seemingly powerless individuals can do to make sure that that's the direction we're going in? Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that the first, th well, I think there's two things people could do as individuals. Um, one, I, I think people can take a little bit more control of what they're getting. So yeah. I always think about social media as something we, we almost just kind of do passively. It's, it's like, well, I follow a bunch of people, I get what comes through my, the algorithms and I, I just read it. And as a result, the algorithms are optimized to promote outrage and anger because that's what drives engagement. But we can make decisions to, to curate social media in a way that, that feeds positivity. Mm -hmm. In the same way that people have started adopting mindfulness or better diets, uh, with food, we can do the same with our news and our social media so that we're getting fed things that are, are uh, more bipartisan and more um, uh, uh, less divisive, more positive. Um, I think the second thing is, is to, to vote with our wallets. And there are news outlets out there that are trying really hard to, to break through, to yeah. provide kind of views that come from all sides or to, to lift up positive stories and people can vote with their wallets and, and give money to those organizations, recognizing that in order for those groups to thrive in a competitive market, we, ha we have to pay for it. They're, yeah. they're responsive to consumer demand and, and the, the bigger outlets are as well. So uh, I think those two things could help. All right, I, I, think that's, I think that's great, Jordan. So speaking of the media, one of the stories I loved, I mean, there were lots of people I enjoyed meeting uh, in the book, but one that I thought epitomized how we silo images and decide what somebody is about is Pete the truck driver. Um, so I, I'd like to hear each of you share a piece of who you thought Peter was and who Peter really was. Yeah, I can, I can get started. Um, you know, we decided after the Trump rally to try to find stories that spoke to larger values, that spoke to um, ideas that Jordan and I could agree upon. Uh, and so we started to look um, wider than politics. And uh, I love Studs Terkel and uh, his book yeah. Working. And I had read one of his interviews with a truck driver from I think the, the 70s um, and decided that this was a profession that I wanted to spend time uh, with. I mean, this, this was the thing about union. We decided to do uh, stories based on um, uh, ideas we wanted to pursue or just stories we're curious about um, and, and larger values. But sometimes it was just simply stud circle is great. Let's go try to walk in his footsteps. And uh, through a series of, of uh, uh, events, we found Pete and we met him in Las Vegas. And uh, we went to this place called Morton's Truck Stop and we were looking for him and we hear this big truck honk and we turn around and there's Pete and he opens his arms and he's got a Make America Great Again shirt on. 
And of course, you know, we were trying to get away from politics at this point. And uh, both of our first thoughts was apparently that's impossible in 2017. Uh, but we got in the truck with, with Pete. We started driving on our way to Slidell, Louisiana to drop off um, uh, a house worth of, of um, goods. Uh, and he started to explain his politics. And one of the first things he mentioned was he wished the president would talk more about climate change. And then from there, we kept, we kept talking about the president and not just about climate change. He, he also mentioned uh, that his, his faith led him to believe that God is love and therefore he had to support LGBTQ marriage in a way that he hadn't necessarily before. And so here was this guy who wore a Make America Great Again shirt for four out of the five days we were with him, but who had all these complex beliefs and all these complex political thoughts. And so that was very eye-opening for me. Um, I had never spent that much time with a Trump voter or someone so, so unabashedly supportive of the president. And what I found is that I could not uh, put my finger on exactly what he believed or what he thought. And that was really powerful for me. But, uh, but Jordan, Jordan came at it from a very different perspective than I did. Um, I did, but I, I would say my, my takeaways were largely the same. Um, you know, I, I was excited to, to go along with Pete uh, because I thought in some sense that he would reflect similar values to a lot of the Marines I served with, mm -hmm. uh, have this kind of deep love for America, but also these, these kind of complex views that, that just arise from, from their own interpretation of, of the news and their, their life experiences. And I expected to find that. I also expected to find someone who was kind of tough and gruff and fast talking, um, but had this uh, uh, kind of ruggedness to him. And I think I was, I was genuinely surprised by how emotional and sensitive Pete was. And he broke down crying half a dozen times uh, over the course of three days. And every time it was over some, some, uh, some family member that he deeply loved or some part of his past that, that just aroused strong emotions in him. And he was this sensitive, unbelievably kind soul. And I, I think Chris and I were just very fortunate we felt very fortunate that we got to spend so much time and meet someone like that who we would never have crossed paths with, paths with otherwise. So Jordan, how do you think someone who is complex like that, do they feel that Trump has responded to what they hope for? Do they feel disappointed in Trump? Do they think there's not really a person that represents the complexity of their uh, points of view, so Trump comes closest. I mean, how does that? How does that person of that kind of complexity um, now view Trump three years in? Do you think? Yeah. Well, so first, I think everybody is that complex. You know, we we as people are are, are complex and nuanced, and we have experiences that that um, uh, apply the filters we look at the world through. And I, I think that's true for everyone. Um, you know, when when it comes to the president. Uh, again, I, it, it's hard to generalize across you know, yeah, of course. people, but I think- But I'm going to make you do it. <laughs> yeah, if, if I must, if I must. Um, I would say that you know, the people who voted for him voted for him knowing his flaws. Like his flaws were mm -hmm. there for everybody to see and he, he didn't hide those. Um, everybody knew his, his, his past um, uh, in New York City. They knew how, how he was with his previous marriages. Like these things weren't a secret. Yeah, so what they what they respond to are not those flaws; they're to the virtues that they, that they see. And for Pete, what Pete said about the president was um, he doesn't give a damn about anything, and he, he really mm -hmm. meant it as a compliment, 
meaning like he's yeah. going to be politically correct. He's not going to do things because, you know, everybody expects him to do it. And so he is his own man. And that was important to Pete. And I think that's true for a lot of Trump's supporters, where what they were really responding to were three decades of politicians in their minds who came, made promises, uh, did a bunch of things in office that ultimately either hurt them or didn't benefit them. And then they leave office and they're in these elite circles and they go off and get wealthy. And, and there's this um, palpable anger, I think, in 2016 that led yeah. to Trump's victory, um, where people were rejecting that form of politics. And while I think, you know, like every president, Trump has done some things they like, he's probably done some things they don't like, uh, maybe he lived up to some expect expectations and not others. I think the this, this support he still holds from that population still comes from the fact that they feel like he's, he's different. He's not a normal politician. And they feel that he really does care about their interests and is fighting for them. Um, I think it's, it's, it's one of the things I felt when I was um, at the Trump rally that when you're, when you're there in person, you really see the connection he has to his support. Yeah. And you can feel that there is th this love that flows back and forth between them, which is hard to tell if you're not there in person. You can't get it just by watching him on TV. But in person, it's, it's really there. And so that's what they're responding to. And, and the writing describing that speech really caught my attention. I think who, whichever one of you um, wrote that, we can talk about how you write a book together, it, it delivered on that observation you just made, Jordan. It, it, because that isn't necessarily, you, you know, I'm a Democrat, that isn't necessarily what I think of Trump. And so reading that, I thought, okay, that's sort of like changing the kaleidoscope of how Trump supporters see Trump in a different way than I might see Trump. I mean, I think the question will be, and it'd be hard for you to know, having been out on the road a few years ago, is whether they have buyer's remorse now seeing the state that we're in, whether they whether that changes their view or not. I mean, I guess we'll know in November. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And it, it does, it gets, it gets back to the point about the media, which is we have such different news diets that, um, you know, on the right, I think they're, they're mostly getting information that says on issue after issue, Trump is delivering for them, um, whether it's, you know, jobs or uh, uh, executive orders on, um, various things that, that they care about or immigration or trade deals or whatever, they're, they're getting fed information that, that um, he's delivering all these things. And then on the other side, there's um, almost nonstop coverage of all the things that he's doing wrong and all the consequences of his presidency and all the scandals. And so it, it's, it's really two, two different worlds we're living in. We're almost watching two different movies. And um, yeah. what'll be interesting to see on November 3rd is uh, you know, which, which movie carries the day with, with more people. Yeah. So I want to, I want to go back. You, you both met at Yale Law School. Um, I, I'm telling you that as if you didn't know, but um, <laughs> you might've forgotten. Um, so I, I want to bring us back to um, a topic about the little topic of the constitution because in many ways for most of U.S. history, the Constitution has stood for a common vision that we had as a country. 
And I was going to say that we seem to have as a country, but I think we actually did have as a country. And now there's um, a lot of observation that we no longer really share a vision. We no longer have a unified sense of what it is America's about. After three years of meeting people, what what's your view of, do we have an American vision? Is there a unified vision? Is the American dream just like, you know, 300 million different versions of an American dream? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I think there's, there's a historical answer, a philosophical answer, and then our like journalistic answer from the road. I think the historical answer is um, the, the idea that we've ever had a unified vision of the country, I think is actually just wrong. Uh, from, from the day the constitution was signed, uh, we broke into factions that had very different views of whether America should stay this agrarian state, sort of the, the Jefferson Madisonian view, or whether it should be um, a industrial powerhouse, which was the Hamiltonian view. And you know, from that day on, we, we've always had very different visions. Um, the important thing is that we engage around the Constitution in order to argue for our vision. And, mm -hmm. and that is the real magic of the Constitution, is that it, created, it creates a framework for governance and to have these debates about which direction we should go. And no matter what side you come at it from, as long as you're wrestling over the, the idea of America and the Constitution itself, like you're engaging in that, that common project. Um, I think the, the philosophical answer um, is tied to that, which is you know, every generation has the right and ability to, to interpret the Constitution, to, to argue for what it means. And we've seen over our long history, all these different philosophies for what the Constitution means or how to interpret it. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. And we're, we're still doing that today. So all these debates we have over things like Black Lives Matter or police brutality, um, issues of citizenship and uh, borders, like all of these are still in the context of different theories of constitutional interpretation that, that we're wrestling over. And uh, I, Chris and I, I think, find that very inspiring. Um, and then uh, to the last question of what we saw on the road, uh, Chris, as the journalist, will have a much better answer than me. But I think we saw everywhere we went that, that everybody we talked to was, was, was uh, worried about what was pulling us apart and felt deeply about the future of the country. And, mm -hmm. and those two things speak to this the shared future that we, we still have together. Um, but I, I would love to hear what Chris says about that. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would totally agree with everything Jordan just said, uh, which is a fun, fun statement. That's to make fun. After, after, after three years of fighting. Um, but no, I mean, I would, I would just reiterate that, um, you know, both of us very early on, I think we wrote about this in the book, believe that America is an experiment. And that that means that uh, we constantly have to renew it. We constantly have to fight for it. Um, you know, I was just re-listening re to uh, Barack Obama's uh, eulogy for John Lewis and uh, Representative John Lewis. And he, and he says, you know, we, we have to re redeem the original ideas of this country. And I think that that is, that is true across the board. And we share this like values language. We share this sort of fundamental belief in, in the, the words of our constitution and the words of the, of the preamble in particular. Um, and it's just a constant effort to, to find the way to live up to them more fully. And we often get it wrong. And this is something that Jordan and I talk a lot about. And it's, it's actually why we're so hopeful is that we, it, that spirit of experimentation of, of uh, entrepreneurial um, um, politics uh, it still exists all around this country, even if it's not um, uh, living in the headlines or living in our politics right now. That is what we saw on the road is people willing to fight for those, those values, willing to fight to try to make that constitution um, more real uh, by the day. 
and uh, and yeah, so we're 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 very you know hopeful, excited for the future of the the United States, even though we're in this moment of great tragedy. And and uh, Jordan and Chris, do you think you ended this trip more optimistic than you were starting out, or reinforced optimism you had? Well, there's a complicated answer to that, which is uh, well, maybe not that all that complicated. Jordan was more optimistic than I was when to start this project. Uh, he was, he thought we'd find signs of America's goodness everywhere we went. Whereas I was Yay, far more Jordan. skeptical. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But, uh, but, uh, sorry, apologies, but I was far more skeptical. Um, I, I couldn't help but, but you know, uh, uh, read the news um, that I trust and, and see all of these problems that we're facing, whether it's the various forms of inequality, um, the opioid epidemic. I mean, there, there were serious problems that we were facing. Um, and across, you know, fast forward to the end of these journeys. And I think um, both of us feel that we were in part right and, and in part incorrect, which is to say that these, these issues that I was so worried about, we saw everywhere we went. I mean, it was impossible not to face addiction, criminal just, the, the broken criminal justice system, issues of racial inequality. But we also found these amazing people who are fighting to try to, to not just work on the values within the constitution, but, but in their own lives, make for a better uh, America, make for a better neighborhood, make for a better community. And it was those people that made me optimistic. I came around to Jordan's perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why we use the word hope though, because we believe that hope is an active form of optimism. You know, this is a, this feels like a, a big pivot, but one of the most touching um, scenes in the book to me was Jordan, you talking about um, taking the Marine oath. And uh, I I'd like you to spend a minute talking about that, but I I'd like you to add that the, a conversation about the loss that we have of those kinds of rites of passage um, and what price are we paying for those rites of passage being less frequent? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, that, that is one of my favorite parts of the book as well. I, I think Chris and I um, probably spent more time on that chapter than any yeah. other. And it's a gorgeous chapter. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and and the, the context is we were, we were in uh, Arizona at a gun range and the, the, the guys who worked the gun range turned out to be veterans, two of them were Marines, and they were enlisting their nephew, one of their nephews, into the army that night. And they invited Chris and I to come back for it. And the, the oath of enlistment, where a young man or woman uh, takes the oath to join the, the US military, uh, to me is one of the more inspiring things in American life. And the reason I, I feel that way is um, for, for, for most of our young lives, and I think for most people generally, um, we make very few commitments in life mm -hmm. that fundamentally change you. And I, I think there, there are obvious ones, like a commitment to a partner for marriage, um, but it's, it's, it's pretty rare. And so to see someone at 17, 18 years old willingly take on this commitment to serve their country, uh, to go through a process that will change them from a citizen into a soldier is, is very awe-inspiring. And it's part of the reason I feel so strongly that this country is decent and good because any country that can inspire millions of young men and women to, to take that oath and then to serve overseas 
uh, in the line of danger in order to protect this country, it, it has to be good. And America has been very active around the world since we created an all-volunteer military, and, and yet people still step forward to do that. And for me, when I took the, the same uh, oath, it's slightly different for officers, but I took that in, in, uh, December, on December 11th, uh, 2009. And it just, I, I had my family around me. I had all the Marines I trained with. And it just, it really felt like this turning point in my life where I went from someone who mostly cared about myself and of course my friends and family to a person who um, had, had uh, a duty and obligation to protect other lives and to uphold the constitution. And um, it, it definitely uh, forever changed my perspective and the way I approach things. And so I, I think that's the power of rites of passage or rituals that, that, that carry some kind of sacred commitment. And we, we don't have that many in American life. And I, I think um, they provide this deep well of, of social capital and form the basis for strong communities. And so I, I, I wish we, we did have more of them because they, they really are this, um, this transformative thing for a person and for a community. Does it make you uh, feel uh, enthusiastic and a proponent for the notion of everybody turning 18 and having service of some kind, whether it's military or otherwise? Yeah, I, I, I am a proponent of it. I, I, don't, I don't believe in, uh, in enforced service, so I, I wouldn't be in favor of mandatory yep. national service, but I think we can provide a lot of incentives and opportunities for people to do it. And if we uh, created a culture where it was expected that when you hit 17, 18 years old, you're, you're gonna spend a year or two uh, devoting yourself to the service of others, I think that would be an incredible thing for this country. I, I think it would, um, it would bridge a lot of divides that we see across socioeconomic and racial lines. And I think it would, it would train people at an early age to think about giving to others, not just about right. the liberties they themselves have. So uh, before we get to um, a question from the audience, I'd like to um, have my last question be, you guys started out friendly um, and maybe friends of, of a male Yale law school type, but at the end of these years, uh, there's a palpable friendship that's obvious in the writing of the book. So what made that happen? What about this trip made that happen? Well, for one, we were forced to, to get, uh, get to know. You could also uh, come out enemies after being forced to well, be together, no, Chris. It's, it's all for show. It's just for it's all, Yeah, exactly. No, no, no. I, but we were, what I was, what, we, were, we were forced together, which means we learned to communicate. Um, and, you know, on these long road trips, you know, you, you get in a fight. Uh, you, you, you know, you think the other person doesn't believe the same things that you do and it's, it's uncomfortable and it's painful. And then you're still 100 or 200 miles outside Reno. Uh, or you're still, you know, 200 miles outside of the next, the, the nearest town. That was an ugly fight in Nevada. It certainly was. It certainly, which is why it comes to mind. But, uh, <laughs> but you go, you go through this, this, um, this maturation process you, or, or, or this, this grieving process almost where you, where you kind of come to understand, like, maybe I shouldn't have said this, or maybe, maybe they've got a point on that, or um, simply I care about this, this relationship and I want to work on it, even if, we haven't come to any sort of conclusion here. So for one, it was just, we, we, have, we, we learned to communicate. We were forced to learn to communicate. And I think that's a really powerful lesson to just keep coming back to the table. Even if you, even if you don't necessarily believe uh, uh, that the other person has heard you or that, that you're gonna break through on that, on that next convo, maybe it's gonna take three or four, just keep coming back. 
And that's really been powerful for the two of us. But we also, you know, we're both lucky to have a, um, a, like a faithful negotiator in these things. Uh, you know, Jordan wanted to be friends with me. I wanted to be friends with him. It was palpable. Yeah. Um, and so there's this like great, like sum of grace, I think, to, to good friendship. And I don't know, you know, where that comes from, but we were very fortunate to find it when we did. And, you know, my girlfriend makes fun of me all the time because whenever I'm on the phone with Jordan, I sign up, I sign off with, I love you, man. Because I, I do think that, that expressing it and, and saying how much yeah. you care about friendship and putting it at the heart of, of um, you know, saying that I want to work on this, I care about this relationship is, is, is the stuff of any great relationship, whether it's a friendship, a romantic relationship, yeah. a professional one. Jordan? Yeah, I, I, think, I think great relationships and friendships are built on shared experiences and shared emotions. And on the road, Chris and I had endless amounts of both. Um, we, we went through different things together that uh, we could always look back on when things got hard or we got into fights. We could look back on those experiences and, and marvel at how much we had come to do and know uh, about the other. Um, and then we had a lot of shared emotions. You know, it, it's when, when, you, when you get into a fight and go through the reconciliation process, it requires a certain amount of vulnerability. And when you spend, uh, you know, important life moments together, like celebrating birthdays or going through breakups where the other person's there for you, um, you're, you're, you're exposing all these emotions that we rarely do with other people. And, and uh, I think those were the things that built this, this strong friendship that, uh, you know, today he's, Chris is my best friend. He'll, uh, you know, I'll be the best man at my wedding, hopefully someday, uh, my mom <laughs> someday. Um, and, and those are the things that I, I think have, have led to this great friendship. Well, and, and, and Jordan and Chris, it, the thing that um, I loved reading about, and I think is a reminder and, you know, to not go down too stereotypical a road, but men don't always seem willing to be vulnerable and it's inspiring to, you know, to read about allowing that to happen has a reward that it's, it, it's, it, 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 I, I loved reading about that. And I, I hope lots, lots of people read it. And I mean, there's a ton to take away from the book, but watching the two of you become friends by fighting um, and uh, letting yourselves get heated and open and vulnerable was pretty cool. Uh, so thank you uh, both for that. So we have a thank couple you. of questions here. Uh, understand, and, and Chris, you, you touched on this earlier, but understanding the divisive role the media plays in politics from both sides, where do you go now for news? Just news, not opinions, not op-eds. Are there any nonpartisan news outlets anymore? Yeah, I, I, would, I would say yes. I don't know, Jordan, Jordan might disagree with me on this. I mean, one, one thing I wanted to say uh, earlier about what Jordan was saying about voting with our wallets is, is we, local news is dying in this country. Yeah. And local news is usually the keeper of the objective news philosophy. And uh, watching newsrooms get hollowed out across this, this country is really disappointing because I think national newspapers uh, are, are more subject to the machinations of national politics, whereas the local, play, uh, local newspapers, whether it's a tiny place up in, say, like Leland, Michigan, where I like to spend time, or whether it's a San Francisco Chronicle, I think those are the places where you'll find um, a majority of the just bootstrap 
um, you know, just tell it how it is reporting in this country. Um, I would also just encourage people to, to look at websites like The Factual um, and others that try to say, okay, you know, what you're reading right now is a moderate left or a moderate right perspective or a, a publication. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not helpful. And that doesn't mean it's not um, going to give you good information. And when you know the sort of uh, overall bias of a, of a publication, then you're far more likely to be able to pick out what is essential about it, what you need as, as a citizen and as a voter. Um, and and factor out what isn't. And so if we if we support places that are local and we support places that are trying to identify uh, uh, bias and and voice up front and being honest about it, I think that's the best way to 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 fight. Uh, Chris, one of the things that is striking to me is the irony that from uh, surveys I've seen, people trust their local news more than they trust their national news, but the local news papers, like I have a friend who owns the Keene Sentinel, mm. um, they're the ones not, they're the ones in financial peril. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 that is, the terrible irony of this is that people love their local news but won't pay for them. And I think that that's, we see that, that happen all over our media. Um, I don't think that means that they are dying. I think that means that we need to change the business. The model will change. Yes, indeed. And I think that if we if we have good people fighting um, for that new model, then then we can actually preserve these institutions. Yeah. Um, the the other question that we've got is oh, well, Jordan, I ought to let you answer it to, for like you know balancing <laughs> this out in case you think it's worse than uh, Chris does. Well. Um, uh, I just have a different approach than Chris. So I, I like going to real clear politics. They aggregate headlines and op-eds from uh, the day. And I just, I try to read uh, from both sides, knowing what I'm getting. So I know if I'm reading National Review that it's, it's from a kind of cent, uh, center-right. If I, I know yeah. it's something from the Huffington Post, it's gonna be uh, center-left. And so I, I just, I like knowing uh, the source and just triangulating from both sides. Yeah. I, I, I'm with you, Jordan. So I read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times every morning. And my favorite is to find a story about the same topic and try to compare what they're each saying about the same facts. So, um, and then the last question is, where are you coming to us from tonight? And what are your plans after you're finished with your virtual book tour? Uh, great question. I, so I'm in Manhattan at the moment. Uh, I, I have my day job here. So I, I work for this company called Schmidt Futures that was founded by Google CEO Eric Schmidt, uh, which uh, has as the mission to try to solve the world's biggest problems using talent and uh, technology. Uh, so I'm going back to my day job and uh, I'll be doing that for the next little bit. Yeah, and I'm coming to you from Southern California where I'm being far more frivolous than Jordan and I'm surfing. Uh, oh, nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> yes, indeed, yeah. You need to, you know, unwind after all of this. Um, and what's coming next for me is I'm going to keep writing and, and maybe I'm going to entice Jordan into keep, you know, writing again with me. So that's what's next for me. All right, great. Um, so the last, I'll let one of our uh, participants have the last comment here. Uh, he or she said, they bought your book because one of my dearest friends is a Trumper. Thank you for a good few pointers to communicate with her better. So hopefully there's gazillion people out there, Chris and Jordan, who are going to 
give somebody with whom they vehemently disagree a different perspective in a conversation. And I'll, I'll repeat it again because I loved it. But if you're going to have a political conversation, as Jordan and Chris say, your objective should be to learn, not win. So exactly. Jordan and Chris, thank you so much. Thank you for writing the book. Thanks for all of you uh, who joined us. We have been talking with uh, Jordan Blaschek and Christopher Ha, uh, the authors of Union, a Democrat, a Republican, and a Search for Common Ground. Next, when the book comes out in paper, guys, hopefully I'll see you in New Haven. Yes, yeah. please. You will be there. All right. Be well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roxanne. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.